Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms. Looking today at Psalm 78, 40 through 72, and a hymn to the Good Shepherd. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that you have so much to teach us, so much to instruct us about how you and the person and work of Christ have come near to us. Even though we do not deserve this mercy and this grace, this kindness, we do not deserve the goodness of God, as Scripture says, that leads us to repentance. Lord, we thank you that your word is true. And Lord, we are just going to be reminded of this powerful truth that in the person and the work of Christ, you have come near you, you've come under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that we justly deserve, that you were buried and that you rose again. So Lord, as we look at this text today, maybe we reminded, reminded that you have done something about the depravity of our human nature, that, that you have come on a rescue mission in, in your incarnation uh, to be born a ba- baby and die a sinless substitute in our place and for our sin to be buried and to rise again. And even now to ascend, to ascend. And even now you are the mediator of the new covenant and you are a soon returning king. So Lord, as we look now at this, the rest of this Psalm 78, Father, I pray that you would use it to open our eyes to the great and wonderful truth uh, about your son about what you've done and the beauty and the glory and the perfection that is in the grace of god alone in jesus name amen and amen well if you have your bibles go ahead and open them to psalm 78 psalm 78 40 through 72 says this how often they rebel against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan. He turned their fields to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which they destroyed them. And he gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flock to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath and indignation and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger, but he did not spare them from death but gave them their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tent of Ham. And then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsake his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. 
He gave his people over to the sword and vented his, his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured the young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he, whom he, which he loves. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. You know, there's a tendency among some Christians today to avoid speaking about anything negative at all. Ours is a positive religion, they emphasize, and we're called to by God to proclaim his goodness, not bad news to the world. Now, this approach, it seems gracious, it seems appealing until we realize how unbiblical it is at its core. As scripture presents it, the Christian message is good news precisely because of the bad news it resolves. Indeed, without the bad news of God's judgment for sin, the good news of Christ and his salvation is cheapened so as to make little sense. In fact, we can say this, in proclaiming the Christian gospel, evangelists must declare and expound on the fact that the bad news of God's wrath on sin is real. And by this means the gospel not only is made relevant, but is also illuminated. You see, when we see the full problem of sin, Christ's saving work exceed our wildest imagining and highlight a grace that is truly amazing. Now, an example of this bad news, of making the good news relevant, is found in Paul's teaching in Romans. And here, Paul teaches in detail that salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. And so he starts his gospel exposition with the bad news of sin, saying this in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What a negative message. That is not a comforting message. It confronts us. And yet what Paul is doing is he's explaining the, the best good news that humanity has ever heard through God's grace that is seen uh, and heard through the message. And yet what Paul is explaining here is that, that the best good news that humanity has ever heard through the saving grace of God in Christ alone. So another example that uses the bad news of sin and human failure to glorify God's grace, it's seen in the text that I just read from, from Psalm 78. And Asaph will conclude this psalm by noting how God shepherded his people and guided them with a skillful hand in Psalm 78, 72. Now, this might not be seen as a remarkable statement unless we've read and understood the history that precedes this statement, a record of sin, of folly, rebellion against God. How can it be that a story that mainly consists of human failure and sin can end with lines of praise to God as our gracious good shepherd? Julia Johnson answers this in her famous hymn, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds all our sin and our guilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Now Asaph, the, the writer of Psalm 78, he pointed out in the first 39 verses of Psalm 78 how Israel had sinned against God during the Exodus. And in the second half of the psalm, he goes back over much the same ground. Verse 40 of this psalm begins, How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Even Christians today who are willing to speak about sin and God's judgment still have a tendency to say as little about our sin as possible. And Asaph, he takes the opposite approach. He's determined to detail extensively the awfulness of Israel's sin. And Asaph is not merely applying a surface bandage on the sin habit of Israel. His purpose is to deliver the people with thoroughly changed hearts to the living and the true God. 
to this end, the first half of this psalm, it detailed Israel's sin from the time of the Exodus and Israel's journey through the wilderness. Having struck hammer blows on the nails of Israel's disobedience, now Asaph, he turns back over the same material to make the point of how foolish Israel's sin was. In fact, verses 40 through 41, they summarize the basic facts as, as the psalmist returns to the Israel's record of sin, saying this, How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. These two couplets, they pair Israel's actions with God's response. And so over and over again during the Exodus, Israel rebelled against God's word as given through Moses. And this grieved the Lord. It reminded us of how closely God's heart is knit together with his people and stricken by their disobedience. The description that Israel tested God is particularly poignant. That the people made demands of God in order to prove his intentions, and they were limited by their unbelief what God should allowed be allowed to do. And this provoked the Lord with the result that he caused the rebel nation to wander in the desert until the insolent generation died away. H.C. Leipold comments, these were not trifling peccadillos. The, 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 they, they were disastrous and devastating instances of deep iniquity. Now, in Psalm 81:13, the Lord bears his aggrieved heart over these foolish sins, saying, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. How foolish it is to rebel and sin against a God whose heart is so loving and who's so tender. But it was especially foolish for Israel to rebel against God in light of all the saving work that the Lord had done. And yet, how quickly the people forgot this reality. And in verses 42 through 51 of this psalm, Asaph recounts God's delivering Israel from the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt, saying this, They do not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt. Here again is the main theme of Psalm 78 in calling the Israelites to remember God's salvation and to teach his deeds to their children. James Boyce powerfully says this to Christians today. If we forget what it costs God to redeem us from our sins through Jesus' death, we will not long trust him in life's trials or love him enough to obey him in times of temptation. What this means is we cannot coast in the Christian life. We're gonna, we're, I'm going to have more to say about this as we go about, but, but we cannot be apathetic in our walk with God. We must avail ourselves of the means that God has given to us in his word. We must get in the word. We need the word of God personally and corporately, like, like we need food and water to drink and sleep so that our bodies will function and we will be healthy as God has designed us. We need the word of God. The, the word of God is, is bread of life. It's living water for our souls. And the, furthermore, the Holy Spirit takes the means of our, of our personal reading, of our corporate hearing of the word. And what he does is he is helping us to grow to be more like Christ. And this is what is so powerful about what Boyce is saying. That is, if we, he says, if we forget what it costs God to redeem us from our sins through Jesus' death, we will not long trust him in life's trials or love him enough to obey him in times of temptation. You know, during, during the uh, World War II times, there was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in there, he details exactly as the title suggests of that book, the cost of discipleship. And he uses two words. One is costly grace. And costly grace is the grace that, that costs Jesus his life in our place and for our sin. And he also uses the word cheap grace. And by cheap grace, he means just doing with the grace of God whatever we want and not as it's defined and revealed in the word of God. And it's the cheap grace of God that Boyce is speaking about when he says, if we forget what it costs God to redeem us from our sins through Jesus' death, we will not long trust him in life's trials or love him enough to obey him in times of temptation. 
And this is so important because we forget, we are prone, as that hymn says, to wander and we feel it, don't we? We feel it. We're, we're prone to leave the God we love, that hymn says. And so we need to remember. And we, we need to remember. We need to remember how God has been good to us. We need to re- re- be instructed in God's word, because you know what? There's 66 books that are in the word of God. There's no way, there's no way to know and to mine, even in one lifetime, the vast riches and depths and beauty, although we should be growing. And this is why we should be growing and we should be growing in humility and understanding the attributes of God, the character of God, the beauty of God, the wonder of God, the grace of God, the person and work of Christ all of which reveal, as we understand them more and more, the depths of our sin and reveal our great need of Christ. That is what we need so that we don't forget to remember the high cost, the costly grace of God in Christ. And now in recalling God's deliverance of of Israel from Egypt, Asaph reminds his readers of the mighty plagues that broke the Egyptians' opposition to the will of God. In Exodus 3, 19-20, the Lord told Moses that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Now in verses 44 through 51 of Psalm 78, Asaph recounts six of the seven plagues with which God afflicted Egypt. First, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of the streams. In verse 44, Egypt worshipped the Nile and God proved his power by corrupting it as a source of life. Second and third, in verse 45, God sent among them the swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. Fourth was a locust plague on their crops in verse 46. And fifth was hail to destroy their vines in verse 46 and livestock in verse 48. Each of these plagues were targeted at Egyptian idols and the sources of life in the land. Sixth, Asaph mentions God's harshest blow when the angel of death struck down every firstborn in Egypt in verse 51. So the very people who were delivered out of lifelong slavery by these mighty strokes forgot them when they were later faced with trials. And yet such is the folly of sin that it forgets the great works by which God has eternally proved his love. Marvin Tate writes, Israel's behavior in the wilderness was characterized by a massive forgetfulness. Likewise, the sins of Christians, especially when we complain against God and we reject his commands, they reflect a foolish forgetfulness of the love of God in sending his son Jesus to die for our sins. Now, the whole point of this section is that believers should trust God in light of what he has done for our salvation in Christ alone. In fact, Paul argues this point in a verse that should often occur to the minds of Christians in Romans 8.32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The point is, is that we have no need to test God and no basis to doubt his faithfulness, since he's already done more than we could ever imagine by securing our eternal salvation when Christ bore our sins on the cross in our place. And so how can we say, how, how can you say that God loves me, demands the sullen and doubtful Christian, forgetting that God has already given the greatest proof imaginable through the blood of Jesus' cross. Now Asaph, he makes a significant statement about not forgetting the Lord's redemption when he says that Israel did not remember his power in delivering the people from Egypt in verse 42. In the Hebrew, the word translated power merely means hand. They did not remember God's hand, says Asaph, even though Pharaoh's own magicians cried out, this is the finger of God in Exodus 8.19. The plagues on Israel were not merely blasts from heaven sent by a distant God. Rather, rather, God became personally involved in their plight, just as God is personally involved in the trials and challenges of his people today. In Psalm 34, 17 through 18, David wrote, when, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. See, God's hand will reach out to you as well as when you call on him in your time of need. 
Now, not only is the Lord willing to help, reaching out his own hand, but he is able to save because of his mighty power. Verse 49 informs us of the angelic host that God employed in the final plague of Egypt when he says, He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. Now, armed with such supernatural resources, God is able to overcome any earthly threat to our salvation. And the Bible's reference to angels should never cause us to put our trust in these mighty servants, but rather should fortify our confidence in the God who commands them. In Psalm 34, 7, David tells us the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And so with such divine power to remember, Eric Lane asks why the Israelites must compromise with their enemies or make treaties or call upon pagan fertility gods to provide, referring to the sins of the Exodus generation. Likewise, with even greater instances of salvation to remember today in the person and work of Christ revealed in the word, how can Christians accuse God when troubles come or fail to honor him in our daily lives? The folly of sin is seen in those who forget the deeds of the Lord, just as true wisdom consists of trusting him with an obedient faith in every situation of life as we live before his face. Now, if Asaph wants his readers to see the folly of sin in verses 40 through 51, the next section highlights how destructive was Israel's judgment for sin. The psalmist recounts Israel's abandoning God in idolatry, God's abandoning Israel in judgment and the nation's utter ruin as a result of loss of protection of God's, God's protection. And now, so first, the psalmist showed how the people of Israel abandoned God even after he had graciously forgiven them and brought the nation safely into the promised land. Those, those familiar with the Bible recognize a description of the passage from the wilderness into the land of Canaan in verses 52 through 55 which says, Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in the tents. And, and the people responded by reveling in the bounty of their new home and, and turning completely away from God. In verses 56 to 57, our, our text tells us this, And yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. And, and because of our people's sinfulness, Israel was like a faulty bow that is never able to cause an arrow to strike the target. Like the generation before them, they tested and rebelled against God. In fact, they became even worse. Verse 58 says, For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. And similar danger faces a church whenever it finds itself comfortably settled in the world. You see, we often forget, as Hebrews eleven thirteen puts it, that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. That is to say, whenever Christians set their hearts on the things of the world and they look to its provision, we begin following the ways of the world and worshiping the world's idols, abandoning God and his word. This is what makes apathy so dangerous in our lives. When, when we start to neglect the means of grace personally, that is reading and studying and meditating on the word, and, and taking it home into our lives. Well, soon what you'll find is, you know, the, as Calvin once said, that the human heart is, is an idol factory. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says that we're to guard our hearts with all due diligence. And in and, and 1 John 5.21, John says this, that little children keep yourselves from idols. Why? Why? Because the human heart is an idol factory left to our own devices, resting in our own sufficiency, trusting in our own power, guess what we'll do? You know what? We'll walk in our own power. We'll walk in our own strength. Uh, it, it doesn't take long to make a mess in our lives. This is why we need to keep short accounts with the Lord. We need to remember how, how God has, has worked, how God in his providence has worked from the beginning. We need to remember, we need to remind ourselves, we need other people to remind, our, to remind us of the grace of God and we need to remind others. 
not just in their loss and in people's loss and suffering. We need, we need the reminders in our doing well with the Lord. We need encouragement. We need people to, to be speaking into our lives. And, and we, need to not, we need to not forsake the assembly, the gathering together of people. Because Hebrews 10 is very clear that we need this. And it commands us even to gather because we have such a need to hear the word preached and to sit under preaching that honors God. That honors God. And if, and if we will not ourselves place our lives personally under the word and under the corporate ministry of God's word, man, you are in mortal danger. You are in what I call the danger zone. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something. I, I often counsel men. And, and one of the number one things that I ask men who are enslaved to pornography, how are you doing it? at the at your bio in your bible reading how how are you doing in your prayer life and and the and the tragic thing and i and i've heard it so many times now is they tell me i'm not doing it at all notice that i'm not doing it at all i'm not in the bible why because they've so coasted in their christian life they become apathetic we should never become apathetic to the reality of our sin, to our, even as Christians, our remaining sin, our indwelling sin. We too, we too often gloss over this. We, we say, I'm, I'm safe, I'm secure. Yes to that, yes. Yes, you're, you are held in the hands of the God who made you, and because of Christ, he saved you through his death and resurrection. Hallelujah, amen. You are signed and sealed in the beloved of, of the Lord. And yet, still, the New Testament has something to say about working out your, fear, your faith with fear and trembling before the Lord in, in Philippians 1 and, and in Ephesians 5. He says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. That there is a working out. There is a practicing. This is why Paul, he gives a list of missives and of directives of commands in Philippians 4, 2 through verse uh, 8. And then he says in verse 9 of Philippians 4, 9, he says this, practice these things. Put them into practice. In James 1, 22, we're told to, that that we're not only to be hearers only, but doers of the word. We're, we're to put our faith into action. The things that we believe are to impact the way in which we live. And when they don't, that's when we're in danger of apathy. You see, it's, it's not enough. And you've heard me say this many times. It's not enough to check the list, the box of reading the Bible, of studying the Bible, of meditating on the Bible, of memorizing the Bible. It's not enough. It's not even enough to sit under the ministry of the word week in and week out. It's not enough. It's not even enough to have accountability. If you're not willing to take home the truth and as people are speaking into your life, now I'm not saying you agree with everything that they say, but, but if you're not willing to consider it, if you're not willing to prayerfully consider it, to hear it, to take it home, you're in danger. You're in danger. See, see, many Christians, they think, I'm good. There's this whole view of this lone wolf Christianity. There's this, this walking, I'll just go to a Starbucks. I'll just go to a coffee shop. I'll just do this life. I'll just have a Bible study. Well, the only thing that you're doing is having a Bible study. There's nothing wrong with going to a coffee shop or a restaurant and having a personal Bible study with a friend or, or even talking about theological matters with your spouse. I am 100% for that. I do it. <laughs> but that's not a church. A church is where we gather together with God's people on the Lord's Day under, the, under biblically qualified elders and we participate in the sacraments where we hear the word preach. Yeah, you can't even you can't even get that when you're listening to a podcast. You just consume content, but but that content can help you to grow, but it's still not a replacement for your local church. That's that's the danger. That's the danger that this this text is exposing for us, the danger of apathy. 
And yet, verses 59 through 64 of this this great psalm in Psalm 78, it brings us through the book of Judges also to the early chapters of 1 Samuel. God being provoked to anger by adultery and sin was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel in verses 58 and 59. The episode in mind is Israel's falling to the Philistines in the battle of Ebenezer, which God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe in verses 60 through 61. Learning of a Philistine offensive, the sensual sons of Eli, the high priest, brought the Ark of the Covenant to the battle, thinking that this symbol of God's presence would be a magical weapon. And yet, to their great shock and to dismay, not only did God give victory to the Philistines, but his holy Ark was also captured by the enemies. In 1 Samuel 4, 10-11, it records, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled. And the Ark of God was captured. And so Asaph looks back on this event as God separating his presence from the people, abandoning them because of their sin, utterly rejecting Israel and removing himself from the tabernacle at Shiloh. Charles Spurgeon said, It seemed to say that Jehovah would sooner dwell among his avowed adversaries than, than among so false a people as Israel. He would, he would sooner bear the insults of Philistia than the treacheries of Ephraim. And when God departs from his people because of sin, the result is almost a calamitous disaster. And so it was for Israel after the ark fell into Philistine hands. Psalm 78, 62 says, God gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. 1 Samuel 4, 10 tells us that after Israel was defeated and its armies fled, there there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Asa speaks of this metaphorically saying, fire devoured the young men and their young woman had no marriage song in verse 63 of this psalm. Spurgeon writes, the nation have failed in its solemn task of instructing the young in the fear of Jehovah, and it was fitting judgment that the very production of a posterity should be endangered. Moreover, their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation of verse 64. And this refers to what happened when the news of defeat came to Shiloh, telling of Israel's defeat and the death of Hophni and Phinehas. Eli, the high priest, fell from his seed, broke his neck, and died instantly, according to 1 Samuel 4.18. Instead of observing the traditional rites of mourning, Phinehas' pregnant wife gave birth to a son, naming him Ichabod, saying in 1 Samuel uh, uh, that the glory has departed from Israel. And so we might even look for many more examples of this pattern taking place during the history of the church, but most relevant is the history of the last hundred years of our nation. The the America of 1900 was not perfect in godliness, and yet most of the nation's institutions, they acknowledge the value and the authority of the Word of God. And yet by 1920, Uh, led astray by the secular humanism of Darwinian evolution and corrupted by material posterity and even national success, the situation had fundamentally changed. Under the influence of European rationalism, most of the large Protestant denominations had abandoned a high and right and biblical view of the Word of God and what the church had taught about Scripture and were instead teaching it as an air-filled, man-made book of merely human authority. And one leader who confronted this slide was J. Gresham Machen in the Northern Presbyterian Church. And, and when the denomination reorganized a Princeton Theological Seminary Board of Directors in order to permit liberal doctrine, J. Gresham Machen resigned in 1929, and he f- formed Westminster Theological Seminary. In the 1930s, Machen fought against the denominational's mission agency for permitting men and women who denied the gospel to serve in the field. And failing to bring reform, Machen launched his own mission agency, for which he was brought on charges and even expelled from the denomination in 1936. This was one prominent example of how the mainline denominations abandoned God's word in the early half of the 20th century. What has resulted from America's abandonment of God? Well, after rising to worldwide power in the 1940s, America has experienced decline in national well-being and social harmony. Exactly the kind of judgment that fell on Israel in the days after the loss of, of the ark to the Philistines are occurring today in America. 
Abandoned by God, Israel experienced virtually uh, complete destruction, military losses, slain use, the failure of national religion, a declining prosperity, and the breakdown of, of families. Calamity and destruction not only fall on nations when they abandon God, but also strike individuals who do likewise. To live under the judgment of God with your sins unforgiven is to suffer the burden of dissatisfaction, even with the blessing of earthly life, together with a loss of meaning and peace. Isaiah 48, 22 summarizes, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. This is what we're talking about. This is the danger of apathy. This is it, Sin always is going to take you further than you want to go. It, it always will. It, 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 always, it always comes with a cost. So the question is, and this is what, this is what Jesus does in the Gospels, are you going to count the cost? Who are you going to love? Are you going to love the world, the flesh, and the devil? As 1 John 2 says, are you going to count the cost and follow Jesus in all of life? And, and when Jesus did this, when he gave these hard words in the Gospels, look at John 6 towards the end. Are you going to, the people just leave. They, these crowds are following Jesus because, you know, he performed all these miracles. But what Jesus does is he gets to the root. He knows our hearts. He, he's the one who made us. He's the one who upholds us by the word of his power. And so he knows what is really in our hearts. He knows how we're really doing. That's the thing. We cannot fake out our God. We cannot pretend, you know what, I'm, I'm well, I'm good. We come to church on Sunday. I'm, you know, people ask how I am. Now, I'm not saying that you tell them everything, but if you're not well, why not just say, you know what, I'm not well. And then, and then the person should say, why aren't you well? I'm not well because, you know what, I have a family member who's dying and, it's, and it hurts. I'm struggling. I'm, I'm in pain. I just had a, or I just had a family member die and, and I'm really struggling. Would you pray for me? Can I just say, if that's you, Maybe you should take that person out to lunch. Maybe you need to walk alongside of that person. You know, you don't know what's going on in that person there, right next to you. So if you're not well, be honest. Our, our Lord sees us as the church. We're called in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We're to walk alongside of each other with, with the one even in the Holy Spirit, he's the paraclete. He's the one who comes alongside. He comforts us in our suffering, in our, in our good times, in our bad times. He's there. He's present. He indwells us as his people. He convicts us. And by the way, conviction is a blessing. It's a blessing from the Lord. Even the hand of God, God's discipline is a blessing. It's, it's to correct us from walking in our own power in our own way when we're when we're corrected when we're rebuked it it never feels good but it's for our good it's it's god's goodness to us it shows that we truly belong to him how we respond to that is a sign of our spiritual maturity it's a sign of is it really really well with my soul do I really, really understand God's goodness to me in speaking his word, his truth to me in a, in a sermon like this? It, do we understand that it is God's goodness when our pastor corrects us because we might have stated something wrong or a friend states something to us and we correct them? That's God's goodness to us. It's not, it's not a, not a it's, a, it's a kindness from God. It's not something that we should be offended by. Of course, we should speak the truth in love. We, we should do that. But, but we shouldn't coast in our Christian life. We shouldn't say, you know what, all is well. When it, you know what, all isn't well with us. We need this. But we also need to hear how God, gracious God is in delivering us from sin. If Psalm 78 had ended with the devastation of verse 64, it would have provided a suitable warning against sin, which has been shown to be both foolish and destructive, and yet Scripture goes beyond mere reasoning in urging us to be faithful to God. 
Psalm 78 makes its most important point in the final section, which argues that God is gracious in delivering us from sin in such a way that surpasses any expectation, so that we should desire to serve him not only out of fear, but, but even more out of gratitude and love. Asaph's narrative left off Israel's defeat in a battle with the Philistines, the destruction of their army, and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. God's saving grace began not with something his people did, but with his own sovereign action. Verse 65 says this, And the Lord awoke from as from sleep. The metaphor it refers to God's rousing himself after apparent inactivity. Asaph then boldly describes God's offensive outburst in terms of a man who's made heroic by strong drink. Verse 65 says, Like a strong man shouting because of wine. And Marvin Tate says that the imagery here, that of a divine warrior who wakes from sleep to do battle once more for Israel. The description refers to how God seemed to awaken when his ark was held captive in the temple of the Philistine god Dagon. And the Philistines looked on Israel's god as defeated, if not asleep. And Calvin comments that when he exercises forbearance and does not promptly execute his judgments, the interpretation which ignorant people put upon his conduct is that he loiters in his manner like a man who is stupefied and knows not how to proceed. The Philistines learned their mistake when they discovered the statue of Dagon first fallen at the feet of the Lord's Ark and then with his head and hands broken off, a symbol of conquest in 1 Samuel 5, 3 through 4. Then people started dying in great numbers from the plague we see in 1 Samuel 5, 6 through 12, until the Philistines were so desperate to be rid of God's presence that they sent the ark back to uh, Jerusalem, to Israel in 1 Samuel 6, 1 through 12. God continued his offensive by raising up Samuel and to lead Israel in victory over the Philistines, removing from his people the yoke that had come upon them by sin. Now Asaph writes in Psalm 78:66, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. See, God's victory over the Philistines, it took place without any aid from Israel. This reminds us that God does not require our help to conquer and to achieve his aims. The episode of the ark's capture might have led some Israelites to conclude with the enemy that the Lord had failed. God's victory over the Philistines proved that, that he had always possessed the power to achieve victory. The reason that Israel fell into disgrace was not God's failure, but the people's own sin in turning from him. The church today will avoid failure as we remain faithful to the word of God. We will not find God's strength failing, but are reminded of his sovereign might over every foe. It was by grace alone that God returned his ark to Israel, having defeated her enemies. It was also by grace that under King David in the next generation, he established his tabernacle on Mount Zion. Verses 67 through 69 of this psalm says, He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. You see, God not only roused him, himself to deliver his people by grace, but he also graciously came back to live among them. Should his presence not encourage us in repenting of our sin and turning back to him in faith alone? David did this after committing the most evil sins in his life, the seduction of Bathsheba and the betrayal of her faithful husband in 2 Samuel 11. Crying out to God for forgiveness, David prayed in Psalm 51.1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And while David would experience many severe temporal judgments, God did restore David. And then David prayed that God, that God would resume his presence in David's life. In Psalm 51, 10 through 11, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We may likewise call on the grace of God to be forgiven and restored with his presence. See, God's gracious deliverance of Israel was completed in the raising up of David to be a righteous king. Psalm 78, 70 says, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. Some of God's greatest mercies involve providing godly and effective leaders in society and the church, and we should earnestly pray for this blessing. In fact, you should pray. If you're, if you're having a hard time finding a church, you should pray and list prayer and ask the Lord to send you, send you to pastors, send you to elders who love him, love the word, love his people, love the church. God desires to give his church 
biblically qualified men and to send his people to biblically qualified churches and biblically formed and shaping and practicing churches where biblically qualified men are leading. David models three features of true spiritual leadership. First, he was humble and being raised up by the grace of God. Verse 70 of this psalm says, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. Now, David did not advance himself by ambition, but was called by God. Secondly, a leader should, should have demonstrated godly character in prior service. Verse 71, from following the nursing ewes to shepherd, to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel's inheritance of verse 71. Spurgeon writes, a shepherd of the sheep he had seen, and this was a fit school for a shepherd of men. Third, David showed himself a true servant of God by both the godliness and, and his ability into which he ruled in verse 72. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. Leaders who see themselves foremost as, as God's servants are most likely to rule righteously and do well in leading the people of God. Do you, do you see Asaph's point here? Look, look at how gracious God was in delivering Israel from sin. Let us respond in faithfulness to him. Christians, look to the Ark of the Covenant and to, and to David and see through them an even greater reason to love God in faithfulness today. The Ark of the Covenant it presents a picture of salvation by grace alone through the blood of Christ alone, especially on the Day of Atonement when sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the Ark's mercy seat. Here is the victory over our great enemy, Satan, sin, and death. And therefore, let us draw near to God through the blood of Christ, as Ephesians 2.13 says. David's kingship was especially given as a forerunner to the eternal reign of Christ the King. Following David, Jesus arose out of a humble setting with a conquering spirit and fulfilled all, all righteousness and achieving God's saving work. Isaiah 40, 11 says this, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. David Dixon thus writes that David was but a shadow of the perfection of Christ and his government. That is to say, Jesus exceeded David in that as God's son, he lives and reigns forever. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, as Hebrews 7.25 says. In fact, Jesus himself declared in John 10, 11, and 28, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I, I give them eternal life and they never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. With what abounding grace God has delivered us from our sins through our good shepherd, Jesus, who died on the cross for our forgiveness. In David's place, Jesus is forever our righteous king. And seeing Jesus as Asaph looked back to God's provision of King David, let us beware the folly of sin by remembering God's saving deeds. Let us avoid the destruction of sin by remaining faithful to true God. The true God is revealed in the word. And let us rejoice in the surpassing grace of God that, that uh, in delivering us from our sins through Jesus Christ. As a psalmist later urges, as we'll see in Psalm 81, verse 16, if you would only walk in God's ways through faith in Christ alone, Psalm 81, 16 says, he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock he would satisfy you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, even right now, Lord, we are, we are devastated by the reality that that we could we we could be so prone to coast and to be apathetic that that we forget and what a sermon what a text like this does is it exposes the many ways maybe even right now that we have forgotten and that we needed to be reminded so you've you've shown us you've laid bare our our hearts before you We've been reminded, we've been confronted, we've been instructed, we've been uh, comforted even by the saving grace of God through Christ alone. And even now, you're, you're the present ministry of your spirit. You are working a thousand million ways in the lives of your people. So Lord, we thank you that your word is true. That your word has a goal, not to just leave us stuck in our sin and in our misery, not, not to probe the, the depths of our sin, not to leave us stuck in our misery as the world does. We, we can wake up and pursue the, the, the good, the, the whatever of life. Lord, you don't, you don't do that with us. You don't leave us stuck in our misery. 
Instead, you you point us, you highlight these are the ways in which we're not following you. And you point us to the beauty, to the glory, to the majesty of Christ, to, to the wonder of the gospel. So Lord, I, I pray today that that not only would we be reminded, not only that that we would remember, remember how you've worked throughout history, remember how you've worked in our lives personally, but Lord, that, that we would take home this truth, that you would lead us to repentance, that we would see not only the horror of our sin, but also the glory of Christ that can deliver us and help us in the midst of our struggles. And Lord, I pray today for those who have, even now, they, they've given up. They've given up fighting against sin. They, they've given up against fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil because they're so tired. I, I pray, Lord, even for those who are facing suffering right now and they, they are tempted to give up. Lord, we thank you that your, your truth is enough for us, that your word is enough. Your word is truth, as you said in your high priestly prayer. So you're enough. Your word is enough. You're sanctifying us by the word of truth. You are truth. As you said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. You're the truth. There's no other way. There's no other gate. There's no other door. There's no other way to be saved other than through Christ. So Lord, we are reminded in the midst of our frailty, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our difficulty, in the good seasons and the bad seasons and and prosperity and, and little, you're enough and you're good. So Lord, expose our idols and our great need of you. Tear down, tear down our idols. Expose our hearts and lay, lay them bare before you that we might cast ourselves fresh on the perfect spotless righteousness of our suffering king who is altogether righteous. Lord, we just confess what 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We thank you for that truth even now. You are altogether beautiful, altogether wonderful, and altogether righteous. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.